0: Hello and welcome to the Northern Stand Hosts, our new uh, interview series. Today I am joined by someone with over 20 years experience in economics, holds a wealth of board positions across Northern Ireland, is on the Infrastructure Minister's um, Infrastructure Advisory Panel and is Associate Director of the Ulster University Economic Policy Centre, Richard Johnson. Johnson, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, looking forward to the chat. Indeed. Um, I suppose getting right into it, Ulster University Economic Policy Centre has done a lot of work this year reporting on the impact of COVID-19 on the NI economy. Um, I attended one of your webinars in the summer and we spoke briefly afterwards and you said that you hoped it wasn't too gloomy for me. Um, We've moved on a little bit since then, um, but what has been the impact on the economy um, of COVID-19 and what are we looking at next year? Yeah, well I
1: suppose now we're beginning to get data that can actually illustrate the the impact on the on the economy of COVID nineteen. So we're beginning to get actual data for unemployment, for employment and economic inactivity. Yeah. What we would estimate is that output, the size of the economy contracted by say 10 to 12 percent. So um the definition of a depression is minus 10% from peak to trough. So there's certainly the potential that Northern Ireland could have entered its first depression. So a very rapid and very deep recession, um, much more rapid and deeper than the 2008 recession. It took about five quarters to unfold and was about 5% in terms of the the full contraction. At this stage, we reckon it's 10 to 12% and really it did unfold over a few weeks. Wow. So far, there's maybe around 20,000 fewer people employed. Um, Unemployment's doubled and there's about 15,000 more economically inactive. Now, what's actually really good is that the labour market has held up much better than we thought at the outset so that's primarily due to the likes of the coronavirus job retention scheme and the self-employed income support scheme so those schemes have actually kept people with their employers um, and the the employment the labour market impact has been much better than we thought you've seen a massive digital acceleration as we move online to work and learn and socialize and there's also a much greater focus on environmental impacts and social responsibility. What we've seen here is a massive disruption added to the other disruptions that society is facing. Um, So hopefully over the next year now we can begin to look forward as a vaccine programme rolls out and some parts of the economy can can get back to normal. Um, As with any disruption, there are winners and losers. The winners tend to go quietly about their business in terms of doing well, and the losers are obviously quite vocal in terms of getting support from government to try and maintain their incomes and their their homes and that sort of thing, so very understandably. So the winners would be things like cybersecurity, logistics and trades, for example, and then certainly smaller shops and villages and towns, as spending moved outside the, the key cities and towns. Savers too have done pretty well, Um, the UK savings ratio went up to about 30%. There are a lot of people who are paying down debt and saving for a rainy day. In terms of vulnerability, that's something that we have focused on in the Economic Policy Centre. So certain sectors have become much more vulnerable. So um, sectors that require a lot of face-to-face engagement and um, socialisation, so arts, entertainment, tourism, um, leisure, restaurants and hotels have all been hit quite hard. And then certain geographies as well. So the, the, the centre of our towns and cities have, have certainly struggled. Young people who are starting out in the job that they want, um, you know, they're, they're starting jobs potentially in restaurants um, or retail would no longer be available to them. Um, older workers who are maybe not as digitally enabled have also suffered, as have those with low formal qualifications and consequently lower, lower incomes on average. Um, and then council areas like Causeway Coast and Glens and Fermanagh um, and Oma, which have a high proportion of, of tourism. So geographically, by age group, um, um, and by certain sector and occupation, there are a lot of quite different impacts across society. So if you're a, an IT programmer, COVID has probably been quite good for you. Um, however, if you work in retail or a hotel, um, obviously COVID has been a huge challenge.
0: Yeah, and you, you mentioned um, the job retention schemes and the, the various uh, support op- uh, offerings that the government um, have put forward and how that's impacted on the job market. Does, is that masking a problem that's going to un- sort of unleash itself next year?
1: Well, I suppose in terms of masking a problem, um, it's certainly a, a very real problem that we have to face in society, and it's better that we keep people as close to the employers um, as possible at this stage. Yeah. Those schemes will um, come to an end or will come to an end for certain sectors at some stage. Um, and what we would expect is that you will begin to see a feed-on to unemployment and inactivity. Perhaps they'll be tapered out. They'll be tapered out for certain sectors. But these are these are huge policy interventions um, at a UK yeah. level between the job retention scheme, the self-employment scheme and the, the business intervention loans. Um, of course, we have our own interventions here in Northern Ireland in terms of rates relief, hardship, and digital training courses and things like that. Um, so there's, you know, the, the policy framework so far has really spared nothing in terms of its response to COVID. Um, it's been pretty remarkable um, and a lot of things have been, been done in policy terms that we thought wouldn't have, have had a chance in, in the past. What I think in the future is that a lot of these will have to wind down because of the public expenditure and, and taxation um, implications of those programmes. But again what the government has shown is it's willing to help those who are in most need. so I think there'll certainly be other forms of the programmes that will be brought in um, over the next year then to try and help those who continue to see serious vulnerabilities as a result of COVID.
0: Yeah and you mentioned those particular vulnerabilities that Northern Ireland faces in different sectors and regional disparities and skills gap and a, of a high level of unemployment how much is that going to impact on our recovery, in, compared to the, the rest of the UK?
1: Well, I suppose we've got to bear in mind, Northern Ireland has traditionally lagged a little bit behind um, the UK, so we have a larger public sector and a smaller private sector, so you'd think that that would in some ways insulate Northern Ireland as well, because the relatively larger public sector hasn't changed, know, health, education, uh, universities, public service. We've all continued to do our jobs, maybe in a different location and be paid the same amount. Um, so that should insulate Northern Ireland and particularly, um, say, areas like, for instance, Down City and Straman, that has a, a larger public sector than some of the other councils, would traditionally be more deprived. Um, there is an insulating factor just because of the structure of the Northern Ireland economy. That said, um, you know if you look at arts, entertainment, culture, um, restaurants, hotels, they do... Prop- employ quite a large proportion of our employees as well Um, so I would say for certain sectors it could take maybe almost a decade to get back to where they were in the past Um, for the economy as a whole it might take sort of three to five years Um, and there's a whole range of uncertainties out there that mean we can't really predict exactly what the future will hold economic forecasting has got a lot tougher over the last few years Um, and not least because we haven't got the data for um, 2020 and we won't have output data for 2020 until December 21 um, so the speed of official stats means that it's, it's quite a challenge to estimate what might happen um, over the next year so yeah, it's, it's, it is tough but we need to we need to make the best um, estimate of where we're going in the economy and then ensure that those that are most vulnerable get the policy and the support that's needed.
0: Yeah absolutely and speaking about uncertainty and I'll preface this by a health warning in that uh, at the time of recording, we're still awaiting a any or no uh, result as the negotiations of Brexit, um, which I think times us in at about twenty sixteen to twenty fifty six, probably. Um, how much can we separate out this the impact of COVID from potential impact of Brexit?
1: I think it's going to be incredibly challenge challenging to disentangle the two. So what you've got here. Um, are two massive disruptions. So COVID um, is the largest disruption faced by the economy um, in Northern Ireland in its history. Um, Brexit's an additional disruption and a lot of the or estimates would have been for a contraction of the economy by, by around four or five percent. So when you add that to COVID then obviously it's a significant challenge. What we've got going on in the background is other mega trends that were already happening. So we've got an aging population there's the climate emergency, there's the fourth industrial revolution. All of these things um, impacted on Northern Ireland's competitive misandering economy prior to COVID and have been accelerated because of COVID. So, so I think really we're in a situation now where it's almost um, disruptions have been cubed. And as I've said before, disruptions will create both winner and losers. So we're not really gonna to hear too much from the winners. They'll go on winning quite quietly. But those who are negatively impacted would lobby quite hard for support as we all would. Um, it, we don't really know what's going to happen with the deal or no deal um, and the discussions that are going on um, at this point in time, but if there's no deal, Northern Ireland will at least stay as part of the um, EU, will still have access to the single market, which is good from a continuity of trade perspective and it puts yeah. NI in a much better place than other parts of the UK. So, not saying that that's a silver lining, but it's certainly a, a benefit of, of, a, not a, of a situation that isn't great. Yeah. Um, What we'll see, undoubtedly, is that there are frictions and costs that will increase some prices of goods coming in from GB. So there will be some substitution effects. You'll see consumers potentially buying goods and services from the south that they might have got from GB in the past. And then in terms of trade diversion as well, so it may be easier for companies to export to Germany by going through the south rather than using the UK land bridge as well. So I think what you're going to see certainly higher prices for certain goods, a bit of trade diversion, um, and certainly those, those frictions um, could lead to some more challenges. Um, we've seen the news recently that logistics companies aren't taking orders to deliver to Northern Ireland, and that's really until they work out exactly what the arrangements are, and what the costs are, and whether or not they can pass them on to the consumer. But ultimately, um, about 60% of the Northern Ireland economy is made up of consumption, the rest is business investment, government and, and trade. Um, but consumers are going to h- end up paying higher prices for a range of goods um, as we look into the new post-Brexit world, I think.
0: Yeah, from the health of the economy to the economy of health, um, Ulster University uh, published a report entitled Health, Equality in the Economy, um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it sort of looks at context of... Healthcare and transformation, social care, uh, health tech, and mental health. Uh, and you have a, a chapter in there entitled The Cost of Healthcare. Uh, but the issues around healthcare in Northern Ireland are exactly new. Um, so we're lining up to the festive period. So, in that spirit, we've had five reviews, four sets of experts, three assembly terms, two intractable parties, and an the executive in a pear tree, or at least one incapable of implementing healthcare reform. Um, In your chapter, you say that money matters alongside so much more, Um, and I think that's true. There's been, you know, it's the health sector seems to be in an unsustainable um, way. Do you want to run through the key points of the the report and from your chapter, particularly?
1: Yeah, it's a great report to work with a range of colleagues from across University of Ulster um, in terms of mental health and all the other elements of of care that takes place in Northern Ireland. but what we find from the, the cost of delivering healthcare is that we, we do generally spend more than most other parts of the UK on delivering healthcare, and that's on a per capita basis. So we're we're not necessarily underfunded. We have much longer waiting lists. We have um, serious issues with capital um, investment backlogs, and realistically, yes, money, more money will help solve a few ills. But realistically. If you look at the Bangor Report, if you look at all the other strategies and um, publications... There's you know,
0: been enough of them?
1: ...what needs to happen with the healthcare sector. Um, there are so many other elements that need to come together now for healthcare reform. and Some of those are, are quite difficult decisions um, and they're quite locally, politically challenging as well. So where, for example, would a cancer or heart disease centre of excellence be located? And How would you deliver very high quality services on a very specialized basis in one or two locations across Northern Ireland. So obviously that means more travelling for people. It means fewer very local hospitals. It also means a lot more care in the community and people um, residing at home. But a lot of those decisions do need to be taken because we can't continue spending more and having sort of worse health care outcomes.
0: Yeah, and it seems like it's a, a more of a politi- as you say, it's more of a political issue than a policy or even funding issue. Um, and I know that before Prior to COVID, um, the, uh, the health minister, Robin Swann, was uh, making an announcement or a speech and uh, Christopher Stalford, the DUP MLA, had said, look, we need to provide cover for the minister and delivering health healthcare reforms because it's not sustainable the way it's set up the minute. And it just, it does become difficult for each MLA in each area. And, I mean, I, I worked for an MLA for a while during um, Edwin Putz's term as health minister and You'd see firsthand on the ground. It is a really difficult debate to have. Um, and is that political? Is it just a political issue that needs to be dealt with? We we know the issues. Yeah, I, I, look, it's absolutely
1: a political hot potato. So I do feel for anybody that um, is representing a constituency that may have um, local healthcare services potentially moved or removed. So those, those are those are huge challenges. Um, and certainly I wouldn't want to be an MLA or a councillor who's um, taken away some of those services or being involved in decisions or votes on some of those services because obviously they matter an awful lot to the people especially in a COVID environment where you know healthcare and um, the, the capability and capacity of the entire system has come under quite a lot of scrutiny in, in recent months so I wouldn't underestimate the challenge of making those hard decisions and I do feel for the people that, that or tasked with making them, but I think as we look into the future of healthcare in Northern Ireland, it, it needs to be different. And as you said, Minister Swan was already faced with a, a healthcare system that was creaking and needed significant reform. And then COVID hit. Um, so it, it really wasn't the place where you'd have wanted to start from. Um, having taken that job on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's taking a little bit of a step back. We have an executive again. We've had one for about a year now. Um. There are significant bandwidth issues at the minute, dealing with uh, impact of Brexit and COVID. But if um, if we could put them aside just for just for a second, um, what what could the executive do in broad terms to to boost economic development generally in Northern Ireland? Is it things like investing in skills or you know providing infrastructure development, things like that? What 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 could really give the, the Northern Ireland economy a shot in the arm? Yeah, and I suppose that's that's
1: absolutely key at the minute, is that we a deal with COVID and B
0: look at all the other plates that
1: the executive has to spin in the air at the same time as well. So, you know, COVID has taken over a lot of the civil service time and a lot of the emotional bandwidth as well and logistical bandwidth of those dealing with all of the decisions. But um, if you look at the economy in society in the longer term we do need to deal with social issues we do need to deal with environmental issues and we do need to focus on the economy so it it's with covid um, and i think we need to learn to live with covid and through covid um over the next number of years the executive could do a, a range of things we've just published a competitiveness report as well um, a, about a week or so ago and what that found is that we we have a an education system that has improved over the last two decades but Other competitor nations have improved more rapidly. And what that means is that Northern Ireland is slipping further behind. So we would say quite often that we have a world-class education system in Northern Ireland. That's probably no longer the case. We have lower levels of literacy, scientific and numeracy ability um, than other competitor nations across Europe. That's gonna be a challenge for bringing in FDI in the future for getting jobs, for living in a more digital environment, all of those sorts of things. We also have low levels of innovation. We have really, really high healthcare and our child care costs. Um, so it's more expensive to work and look after your children in the UK and Ireland than it is in any other part of the UK. So we're top of the table in some of those things that we don't really want to top the table in. Yeah. Um, um, I was re- what can I was the executive... Go do? Sorry. No, um, go ahead. So the, the executive could invest quite heavily in terms of the education system um, in terms of looking at the curriculum for Working in the fourth industrial revolution, a more digitized curriculum, um, looking at the skills that are not easily automatable. So, those are the human skills like strategy, empathy, leadership, all of those sort of soft stroke human skills, and then the technical stroke hard skills of coding, data analytics, um, and cyber, and all of those sorts of things as well. Um, you've had that massive move. The other thing we could do is looking at the green revolution. So. How could we actually support um, a much greener society in the future? We import an awful lot of heavy oils for heating and transport. Those are two areas where Northern Ireland is really, really poor. And if there's a significant oil price hike, that means that um, society suffers quite a bit in Northern Ireland in yeah. terms of fuel poverty. There's a huge opportunity there for um, electric or hydrogen vehicles for moving away from oils. There's a massive opportunity in terms of retrofitting homes and again moving away from oil-based gas-based heating but that needs a concerted energy strategy that's properly thought out and costed um and again i do feel for a lot of the the officials working in this area because with the history of rhi i think it's going to be probably a quite a challenging and slow process um and a lot of the, the models and the spreadsheets are going to be examined in massive detail which can slow up the process so there's a lot to be done yeah so the executive could also look at um taking equity in certain companies and maybe giving them enough um, breathing space um, effectively to take equity or give a loan where that would get them to the point next year of where they're actually, um, they have enough money um, to get over the the hump and the worst of the recession. And then they can pay back the loan or buy back the equity in in the future. So there's quite a lot that can be done.
0: Absolutely. Um, And forgive me, this is going to be a long question, but um, bear with me. Um, I was watching a film at the weekend, um, The Big Short. I don't know if you've seen it. It's about the um, housing market and the housing crash in 2008, um, starring Ryan Gosling and Steve Carell. No um, one hosts uh, doing economic policy and film reviews all in one. Um, but one of the things that they did in the film is they had celebrities explaining the technical aspects of um, the housing and financial markets. Uh, and in one part, they had the economist Richard Thaler and the pop star Selena Gomez talking about subprime mortgage markets using blackjack as an analogy. Um, now, you're a behavioural economist, uh, so you'll know that Richard Taylor is an excellent communicator of all things economics and, and has had a practical impact on even the UK uh, with the Behavioural Insight team in the Nudge Unit. Um, economics is hard and it's complex and it's, it's gloomy at times, as we um, discussed over the last few minutes. We've um, had Michael Gove said. You know, we've had enough of experts, um, and some of that gloom that we've talked about in relation to Brexit will be met with just shrugs from a, you know, a great swathe of the population. I mean, how do we overcome communicating economics effectively? Because um, it seems like quite a quite a challenge.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's certainly a challenge. You know,
0: we're we're trying to communicate,
1: you know, a large amount of data. Um, data driven analysis to to people and make it clear and concise and quick. Um Thaler, very, very interesting in terms of what's been done across the, the world in terms of behavioural economics over the last last decade or so. Um, Cass Sunstein was was um, brought into the White House to advise on nudge economics in Obama's time. So you know this is a massive area that has moved ahead across the rest of the world. Um, the UK has the behavioral insights team and hopefully by in April we'll be um, moving forward with um, Behavioural Insights with DFC so we we'll have to thank people like Tracy Mahard, the Permanent Secretary Beverly Wall, who's a Deputy Secretary um, and Gillian Callan, who's their Economist in there, so we've been working with them actually to, to try and create a Behavioural Economics Unit and give that extra gear to policy in Northern Ireland so if you take the likes of the Competitiveness Report, there's, there's over 100,000 data points in that um, research and my job is then to distill that down to maybe five or six or seven charts that are relevant and interesting to the audience. It's about making sure that I know the audience, I can appreciate their perspective yeah. and what I need um, to get out of that information. So for us, it's, it's infographics, it's podcasts, it's chats like this, TV programs, um, and it's all about making economics more accessible. We don't need to be using jargon or complicated terms um, if we can get things across in a a very straightforward way then it's better that people get five or six to the points um rather than being sort of dazzled by all of the science
0: yeah and it is horrible if any other economists want to come on to the northern slant hosts and talk to us we'd be more than happy to uh to help out um well richard it's been great to speak to you really really appreciate that um, really insightful discussion uh, particularly on the, the economics in relation to covid um so thanks very much for for speaking to us this afternoon no worries, and thank you for the opportunity. No problem. Um, yeah, this is one of the first in our series of Northern Sand hosts. We're hoping to do a few more, uh, which you'll be able to find on our website and uh, by, uh, by looking up our social media. So um, keep an eye out for those. Uh, and in the meantime, Richard, thanks very much again.
1: Okay, thanks,
0: Roger.